Our scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 869. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we come now to be under your word, the word of Christ. So, would you give us ears to hear it, to understand it, to take heed of it, to submit ourselves to it gladly? Would you give us grace to obey it? And would you give us hearts that rejoice in the great God and King, in the Savior who's revealed in this word, the Lord Jesus Christ? Please attend to the preaching of your word by your Holy Spirit and power. We ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Ask practically anyone who knows Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan what that parable teaches, and you'll get some version of this. The parable teaches that we're to do good to our fellow human beings. The famous evangelist Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham, heads a ministry called Samaritan's Purse. According to that organization's website, quote, the story of the Good Samaritan gives a clear picture of God's desire for us to help those in desperate need wherever we find them. After describing how the Samaritan rescued a hurting man whom others had passed by, Jesus told his hearers, go and do likewise. For over 50 years, Samaritan's Purse has done our utmost to follow Christ's command by going to the aid of the world's poor, sick, and suffering, end quote. So Samaritan's Purse says that 
By means of the story of the Good Samaritan, God reveals his desire for us to help those in desperate need wherever we find them. Indiscriminate service to the world's poor, sick, and suffering. This indiscriminate aid motivated by the parable of the Good Samaritan is reflected in all the so-called Good Samaritan laws that we have in our country. Did you know that all 50 states and Washington, D.C. have Good Samaritan laws on the books? These laws give people some measure of legal protection when they engage in helping other people whom they believe to be in urgent need somehow or another. But does the parable of the Good Samaritan teach that God's people are to be looking to indiscriminately help their fellow human beings, like much of our common use of the phrase Good Samaritan seems to imply? What question is Jesus answering when he gives this familiar parable? Is it the lawyer's question? Or is it a different question that the lawyer ought to have asked? Whom does the parable teach is your neighbor? Since that's the question asked by the lawyer that gives Jesus the prompt to offer the parable. Is your neighbor any fellow human being or does the Bible define the term neighbor more narrowly? Does it matter for your eternal soul what you believe about who your neighbor is? And what shall you do to inherit eternal life? That's a pressing question. In fact, these are all pressing questions, and our text today is going to answer all of them. Now, Jesus and this teacher of the Jewish scriptures called a lawyer here in our text, they both use the term neighbor in their conversation with each other recorded here in Luke 10. And Luke doesn't define neighbor for us, at least not explicitly. But Jesus and the lawyer both know what the other is talking about when they use neighbor because they're both working from the same definition of that word. And that definition comes from Leviticus chapter 19, a portion of which the lawyer quotes in his response to Jesus' question in verse 26 when Jesus asks him what is written in the law. So to start with, if you and I are going to understand this parable, we have to know what Jesus and the lawyer meant when they said neighbor. And to get that information, we're going to go to the passage that provides for us the command to love your neighbor as yourself that the lawyer quotes. So go with me first to Leviticus chapter 19. That's the third book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And if you didn't bring a Bible, feel free to use the one that's in the pew rack in front of you. It'll be helpful as we go along today. And having a sermon outline will be helpful as well. If you don't have one on paper, you can go to cmcvermont.org slash gather and get a digital outline to today's sermon. Leviticus chapter 19. And as we come to this passage, the book of Leviticus is recording for us the commands that the Lord gave to Moses for the Jewish people during the time of the Old Covenant. So that's the context in which these commands that we're going to read in Leviticus are given. They're given by God through Moses to the Jews, the people who made up the old covenant community by virtue of having been circumcised. And so, to this old covenant community, 
The Lord says, beginning in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor. Or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In those verses, I count five instances of the word neighbor, including at the end, verse 18, which gives us the second part of the command that the lawyer quoted, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so, does this passage, which defined for Israel who a neighbor was, Define the term neighbor for us so that we can understand the Good Samaritan parable. I'm happy to tell you the answer is yes. And so what is the definition of neighbor according to Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18? Here it is. A neighbor is a fellow member of the covenant community. Let me say that again. According to Leviticus Chapter 19, a neighbor is a fellow member of the covenant community. Let me show my work there. Notice again in the passage I just read from Leviticus 19 how the term neighbor is used interchangeably with terms like one another, verse 11, your people, verse 16, your brother, verse 17, Your own people, verse 18. And so this passage in Leviticus 19, which is informing the parable that's before us today in Luke's gospel, teaches us that neighbor is someone who is among your people. Neighbor is your brother. Neighbor is your own people. Do you see how neighbor is used interchangeably with those terms and phrases here in this text? Your people, your brother, your own people. We are to conclude that neighbor is a synonym for all those phrases. That means that your neighbor is not just any one of your fellow human beings, which many hold is the right way of interpreting the word neighbor in the Scriptures. No. According to the Scriptures, your neighbor is whoever also belongs to the covenant community you belong to. Let me say that again. You are misunderstanding the Scriptures' teaching if you conclude that to love your neighbor means to love indiscriminately your fellow human beings. Now, there is a command for that which we'll get to. But it's not the command to love your neighbor as yourself. 
No, your neighbor, according to Leviticus 19, which informs the Good Samaritan parable and every other place in the Bible where the command to love your neighbor as yourself appears, your neighbor, according to Leviticus 19, is whoever is a fellow member of the covenant community to which you belong. For the Jews who first received this command, that was the community under the old covenant. For Christians, your neighbor is whoever belongs to the community of the new covenant. That is whoever's been saved, whoever's been born again. Your neighbor, Christian, and thus the object of your obedience of the command to love your neighbor as yourself, your neighbor, Christian, is your brother or sister in Christ. All right, let's go back to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, the third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. I think the sermon outline gives you the page that Luke chapter 10 verse 25 can be found on in one of those Bibles in the pew rack. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. So a lawyer, again, a teacher of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we'd refer to as the Old Testament, a lawyer stands up, which is how you would ask a teacher a question in this day, and he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a very good question. But God, the Holy Spirit, who inspired Luke as he wrote this book, causes us to have a divine, all-knowing narrator who tells us that the lawyer wasn't asking the question innocently, even though it's a good question. He was putting Jesus to the test. This lawyer wanted to stump the chump, so to speak. And that's a tall order if the supposed chump you're trying to stump is God the Son in the flesh. (laughs) And Jesus answers him in a way that's pretty common to Jesus. He answers the question with a question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, Jesus asks the lawyer, well, what do you understand the Scriptures to teach about how to inherit eternal life? And the lawyer replies with a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6, immediately followed by a quotation from the passage we looked at earlier, Leviticus chapter 19. The lawyer says, do you see it here in our text? Verse 27, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. And... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19.18. And Jesus tells the lawyer that it looks like he knows exactly what the Scriptures teach about how to inherit eternal life. What does Jesus say to him? You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself and you will live, Jesus says. You will live eternally. In fact, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus quotes those two commandments, love God entirely and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says that all the law and the prophets, that is, all the commands and teachings from the Lord depend on those two, love of God and love of neighbor. So yeah, Jesus says, you got it right, well done. 
round two of Stump the Chump. The lawyer follows up, seeking to justify or to vindicate himself, the text says. And who is my neighbor? Now, before we move on to how Jesus responds to that second question from the lawyer, let me attempt to make something plain. If you've heard other teaching and preaching on this parable, maybe you're familiar with one very popular interpretation, which is that Jesus' parable isn't actually designed to answer the lawyer's question from verse 29, and who is my neighbor? One popular interpretation is that the parable is answering another question, that it's answering the question that Jesus thinks the lawyer ought to have asked. How can I be a neighbor? I want to tell you, I disagree with that interpretation. I think Jesus' parable is given precisely to answer the question that the lawyer asked, which is, and who is my neighbor? That's the lawyer's question. And the parable that begins in verse 30 answers that question, and who is my neighbor? So to answer the lawyer's question, beginning in verse 30, Jesus tells a fascinating, evocative, and moving story. A man, no distinguishing characteristics, a man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, the fact that Jesus places the man in Jerusalem and the fact that in telling this story to a Jewish teacher of the law, Jesus doesn't point out that the man wasn't Jewish, those two facts ought to cause us to conclude that the man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho was a Jew. That's an essential detail to correctly interpreting this parable. So you've got a Jewish man He's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, as it says, topographically. If you're going from Jerusalem, which is on a mountain, anywhere you go from Jerusalem, you're going down. So he's going down from Jerusalem eastward to Jericho. And while he was making that journey, he encountered some robbers. And they did awful things to this man. They stripped him and beat him. And then they hightailed it away with whatever clothes and other possessions they were able to take from him. And they left him half dead. A Jewish priest walks by, sees the man clearly in need of help and care, but notice what he does in verse 31, passes by on the other side. Now again, I know that a lot of you have heard a lot of teaching and preaching on the Good Samaritan parable, and I want to address some of that as we go. Don't try and attribute any motives to the priest's actions other than the obviously negative ones that we see here. If Jesus wanted us to know that the priest passed by on the other side because the priest was trying to keep himself from being ceremonially unclean according to the law of Moses or something like that, then Jesus would have included that detail in this parable. But he didn't. What we need to know, he tells us. And then we see that a Levite, that is, a Jew who was one of the ones tasked with facilitating the worship of the Lord at the temple, a Levite, just like the priest, passes by on the other side. He saw the man, but he decided to offer no help or care. Now, the story gets even more intriguing. If you had been around the day Jesus is telling this story, you might have heard an audible gasp or seen mouths turned downward into frowns or scowls at the mention of the character introduced in verse 33. 
Jesus says, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. You need to know about the Samaritans. They were people who lived just north of Israel in a region called Samaria. Samaria, Samaritans. And the Jews of Jesus' day hated the Samaritans. And the feeling was mutual. Why is it that the Jews so loathed the Samaritans? Their conflict went back several centuries before Jesus was born in Bethlehem to when the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C. Some Jewish people remained in Samaria, even after Assyria either killed or exiled many of the Jews living in that northern kingdom. And the Assyrians brought in non-Jewish people into these formerly Jewish lands, like the region of Samaria. And the Jews that remained there began to marry these non-Jewish people who worshipped false gods. And they began to have children with them. And those children, the product of Jew and non-Jew Gentile marriages, were seen by other Jews as idol-worshiping half-breeds. Now, there are more reasons I could give you for the animosity toward the Samaritans from the Jews, but suffice it to say that the Jews and the Samaritans make the Hatfields and McCoys or the Capulets and the Montagues like toddlers playing in a sandbox. And that's who gets introduced in the parable, a Samaritan. After two VIPs in Jewish religious life leave their fellow Jew, their fellow member of the covenant community, beaten and well-nigh dead, a Samaritan sees him and has compassion. He doesn't pass by on the other side. Verse 34 says he went to him, and he binds up his wounds and treats them. And he puts him on his animal, probably a donkey, and takes him to a place where the man can stay while he recuperates. And the Samaritan tells the innkeeper, you take care of him. Here's some money for you to use for him. Care for him until he gets well. And then when I come back by this way, whatever additional money you spent for his care, I'll pay you back for it. What a story. So short, just about 150 words in the English, but so vivid. And then Jesus asks the lawyer the million-dollar question in verse 36. A question that reflects that Jesus is indeed answering the question that the lawyer asked back in verse 29, instead of redirecting his question by means of the parable. The Lord asks this piercing question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. Again, the lawyer has Leviticus 19 in mind. Leviticus 19, which commands, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which at the very least means when you see your neighbor bloodied and beaten and naked, you don't walk away from him. So which of the three men in the story proved to be a neighbor to the robbed and beaten man? The lawyer knows the obvious answer. The one who showed him mercy. Or he could have said, the one who loved his neighbor as himself. 
And that response reveals that the lawyer knows that he's just been given the answer to the question he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It turns out that the answer to the question, and who is my neighbor, is the one who shows mercy, the one who shows love to his neighbor. And the whole exchange ends with the last part of verse 37 in which Jesus answers the first question that the lawyer asked back in verse 25, the first verse in our passage. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You need to hear Jesus' answer to the lawyer's question because you all need to be asking, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And here is Jesus' answer. You go and do likewise. You go and love your neighbor as you love yourself, a love demonstrated by the Samaritan. You go and do that if you would have eternal life. And here's what would have left the lawyer and the listening Jewish audience to Jesus' parable slack-jawed. It turns out that the Jewish priest and the Jewish Levite aren't neighbors to the Jewish man who's beaten and half dead. The Samaritan was. The priest and the Levite demonstrated they weren't neighbors because they didn't love their fellow covenant community member. The Samaritan did. Turns out, if this Jewish lawyer is going to inherit eternal life, he has to show love to those who show love to their neighbors. Because that's what a neighbor does, as we've been saying. It's those who obey God's commands to love their neighbor who demonstrate that they are neighbors and who thus inherit eternal life. Now, if you're still struggling with this idea that neighbor doesn't mean any fellow human being, but it instead means, hang with me, Now that the time of the old covenant has ended and the new covenant has been inaugurated with Christ's death and resurrection like we saw when we studied Hebrews, if you're still struggling with the idea that neighbor quite narrowly means fellow member of the new covenant community, fellow believer, fellow Christian, let me take you to a passage that's often used to argue that Christians ought to be showing indiscriminate love to their fellow human beings if they're going to keep God's command to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So keep your place in Luke chapter 10, and let's go to the left, two books to the book of Matthew. So we're in Luke. The book immediately before Luke is Mark. The book immediately before Mark is Matthew. And turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Boy, you guys are doing a great job hanging in there with me. Thank you. Matthew chapter 25. Let's look beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations... And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. 
I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. This is Jesus teaching what's going to happen when he returns. He's going to say to those on his right, he's going to say to the sheep, as opposed to the goats who will be on his left, the passage goes on to say the people that he's going to cast into eternal punishment, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus is going to say to the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And Jesus says the sheep are going to say, what's that now? When did we do all that to you, Jesus? And he's going to say to them, when you did those things, look at verse 40. When you did those things to the least of these. Now, that's where lots of people and lots of missions agencies stop and conclude we have to love the least of these, meaning the poor, the downcast, the outcasts, the marginalized. And we do, I'm going to get to that. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 40, when you did all those things to the least of these, my brothers, then you did it to me. Jesus is going to separate the sheep and the goats, the righteous going into eternal life, the cursed going into eternal punishment, and the sheep are going to hear him recount how, the, how they loved Jesus' brothers in all the ways we see in verses 35 to 39, and the goats are going to hear him recount, verse 45 says, how they did not love Jesus' brothers in those ways. So the question is, who are Jesus' brothers? And he tells us in Matthew chapter 12, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And who are the people who do the will of the Father? It's people who are born again. It's Christians. Notice what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 25. The evidence that will separate the sheep and the goats at the judgment is love for Christ's least of these brothers. And in so doing, he says we'll be loving him. Are you seeing? Are you seeing how loving your neighbor, your brother and sister in Christ, as you love yourself, is inextricably linked with loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that to show love to your neighbor is to show love in Christ, is to show love to Christ, because in whom has your neighbor been placed by faith? In Christ. Listen, 
The Bible is saying to you that a distinguishing mark of having been genuinely born again is that you love your neighbor who is your brother and sister in Christ. Therefore, not being characterized by love for your fellow Christians reveals your soul may well be in peril. Matthew 25 doesn't teach indiscriminate love to just any fellow human being as the distinguishing mark of having been born again. It doesn't teach that indiscriminate love is the obedience to the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, are we as Christians to love all people in some general sense? Of course we are. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And then he says, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So don't misunderstand me, please. Don't don't misinterpret what I'm saying and conclude that I'm saying only focus your love on Christians and hang everybody else. I'm not saying that. Friday night, we had Awana here at church. I have three children who are in Awana. I hadn't seen them Friday because I got up for men's prayer and then went, went to work. So my first chance to see my three oldest kids on Friday was at Awana. So I popped down into the cubbies, I think, is what the kids downstairs are called. And I saw my three-year-old, John Mitchell. And there were other kids in that room, and I was happy to see them. But I confess to you, I wasn't as happy to see them as I was my little boy. And then I come up here into this room. And my seven-year-old Georgia is with her class, and my five-year-old Bethany is in her class. And I was so glad to see all the kids that were in their classes. I love the kids in our church. But one little girl and another little girl pulled on my heart in a way all the other kids didn't. And that's true of you guys as well who have children. When you teach Sunday school or discovery or you keep nursery, You love all those kids, but not like you love your own. We're to do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This command to love your neighbor as yourself is not obeyed when we do good indiscriminately for fellow people, but it's when we do love toward those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's going to separate sheep from the goats. Love for Christ's brothers. Love for fellow members of the new covenant community. Love for neighbor. And getting back to Luke chapter 10, the good Samaritan, he shows that love. And the priest and the Levite don't. And that reveals that in the covenant community that Jesus has come to establish with his death and resurrection, The new covenant community that consists only of those people who've had the promises of the new covenant from places like Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 poured out on them, a new heart, a new spirit, God's spirit indwelling us, having his law written on our hearts. This parable from Luke 10 reveals that in the new covenant community, which consists of those who love their neighbor, the Samaritan is in and the priest and Levite are out. And if this lawyer wants to be in, what does this parable cause him to conclude? Who is it that this lawyer must love if he wants to be in? He must love the Samaritan. 
As I told you a couple of weeks ago in my overview sermon from Luke's Gospel, Jesus is doing this kind of thing all over the place in Luke's Gospel. Luke shows on nearly every page that Jesus has come to establish a new covenant community consisting of Gentiles like the Samaritan in the parable, and of outcasts like Zacchaeus the tax collector, and the grateful Samaritan leper in Luke chapter 19 that Jesus heals and saves, or rather in 17. And the thief on the cross, and I could go on. Neighbor, it turns out, means the same thing it's always meant. It means fellow member of the covenant community. But the lines of who's in and who's out of the covenant community have been redrawn. That community no longer consists of those who are physically circumcised, but now it consists of those whose hearts have had the sin circumcised from their hearts through repentance and faith in Christ. And those people, like the Samaritan, demonstrate that they belong to the community of those in the new covenant by loving everybody else who belongs to that covenant, by loving their neighbor as themselves. Now, I'd like to give you some ways to make use of this text. First, gratefully exult in your great neighbor. As we've seen, a neighbor demonstrates his neighbor's status by showing love to his brothers and sisters, by showing care and compassion, not with mere lip service, but love indeed. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that there will never be a greater neighbor than the Lord Jesus Christ. Did he show compassion for his brothers and sisters? those who do the will of his Father in heaven. Of course he did. He died for his neighbors. He laid down his life for his friends, as he puts it in John 15. He selflessly loved and had compassion on us. His neighbors were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were sinners. We were his enemies when Christ died for us. In fact, he died and was raised from the dead to make his people his neighbors. He died and was raised from the dead so that we would be placed by faith into the new covenant community that he inaugurated with his death and resurrection. Jesus showed sacrificial love to his brothers, his neighbors, by dying for us, didn't he? Though he always completely obeyed the commands that summarize the whole law, he always loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength, and he always loved his neighbor as himself. Though he kept all of God's commands perfectly all the time, because of love for his neighbors, he willingly died for the likes of us who were totally unable to keep those commands even for a moment until he saved us. Brothers and sisters, we were sinners. We were breakers of God's law. We were people who stood justly condemned, justly cursed. By all rights, we deserve to suffer under God's wrath unceasingly and eternally as the just payment for our sin against God. But Christ suffered in our place on the cross, He was cursed. He received the punishment of a sinner, of a lawbreaker. On the cross, he was treated as the one who had not kept covenant, even though he kept it perfectly. So that we, 
who had never kept covenant would be redeemed from the curse of covenant breaking and be made alive so that we would have new hearts, hearts able to obey the Lord's commands to love him and to love our neighbor. But Jesus made the first move and the essential move. Without his death and resurrection, we're still dead in our sins. We're still cursed. We're still bound for hell. But because on the cross he was cursed for us in our place, cursed with our curse, and because God raised him from the dead, now we're free and we're saved and we're born again and we have the certain hope of eternal life with him. And right now, right now we enjoy the Father's smile and his pleasure and his love and his grace and his mercy on us. He looks on us with love. He no longer hides his face from us. Praise the Lord. And why do we know these blessings, dear brother and sister? It's because Christ loved his neighbor as he loved himself. It's because he had mercy and compassion on those whom he knew he would make to be his neighbors by laying down his life for us. Now let me encourage you. Would you just take a moment And without distraction, think on what your response to love like that ought to be. Shouldn't your response be humble, grateful, awestruck, exaltation? No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're going through, Christ's love for his neighbors, his brothers, those who have faith in him, is better news than whatever bad thing you're going through is bad news. And if that doesn't describe the state of your heart this morning, brother or sister, confess that to the Lord. He's merciful. Ask him to give you grace to be characterized by humble, grateful exaltation in your Savior, who is the quintessential neighbor and lover of his neighbors as he loves himself. Second, I want you to be clear about what is the grounding versus what is the fruit of inheriting eternal life. Should you conclude from our text today that you must love your neighbor as yourself so that you will inherit eternal life. As though your neighbor love is the determinative factor in whether God grants you eternal life. No! By grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, Paul says in Ephesians. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified, Paul says to the Galatians. To the Romans, he says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So why is it 
that Jesus is affirming that the answer to the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Why isn't Jesus saying to him, what do you mean do to inherit eternal life? You don't do anything. It's all faith. Why isn't Jesus saying that? It's because, as I preached a few weeks back in my sermon on true conversion... Those to whom God has granted genuine saving faith will demonstrate that he's granted them genuine saving faith by loving God entirely and by loving their neighbor, their brother and sister in Christ as they love themselves. Not perfectly. Not perfectly. But really and truly. And as a pattern of living. We don't love God and neighbor so that God will save us. Heaven forbid. No, we're justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. But when a person has been justified by faith in Christ, that justification is going to bear itself out by obedience to God's commands, namely loving him and loving his people. Why? Because God empowers the justified person to obey him, as Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesy. So, lastly, let's put some boot leather on this. How do you go about loving your neighbor as yourself? Use the ideas that I'm going to give you as both prompts for how you can go about doing this and as diagnostic tools to see how you're doing. This isn't an exhaustive list by any means, and I'm not going to preach the passages that I've included in your outline, but perhaps you'll meditate on these passages during the week. You love your neighbor as yourself with patience and kindness. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. And then he unpacks that kind of love. Just let those ideas roll around in your head for a minute. You love your neighbor. You love your brother or sister in Christ with patience and with kindness. Let me get in your business a little bit. How would your thoughts about some of your neighbors in this room change? Your thoughts. How would they change if they came to be characterized as patient thoughts and kind thoughts? Who would you stop judging for doing things that aren't sin? Who would you stop being easily annoyed by? Who would you stop trying to avoid because you think they're weird or inconvenient or you're angry at them or nursing some years-old grudge against them? How would your actions change towards some of your neighbors here at CMC if your actions came to be more characterized with patience and kindness? Who would you invite to your house or make a point to sit by at the next church service or picnic or church meal? Who would you send an encouraging text to? Who would you pray for or invite to lunch or coffee? Who would you call up and ask to ride with you to church? Who would you reach out to to be reconciled to if your actions more were characterized by patience and kindness? Which neighbor, when you gather for church, would you strike up a conversation with instead of 
passing by on the other side. You love your neighbor with humble others' focusedness. To the Philippians, Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So how would your calendar or your weekly schedule change? How would you go about ordering events and activities in your week? How would those things change if you came to be more characterized with loving your neighbors here at CMC? We're going to have a work day soon. Will you be there? How do you respond when you get a call asking about being placed on the serving schedule? Is community group inconvenient for you or aggravating to you? I'm really asking who's number one for you? You or your neighbor? Don't have the evil mindset, I got to look out for number one. Where your time goes and where your money goes will reveal what's true in these areas. Those who love their neighbors as themselves, which Paul's going to go on to say in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, is the mindset that Jesus had. Those who love their neighbors as themselves demonstrate this love as they occupy some place other than first in their lives. What are some ways for you to grow in being characterized with a humble other's focusedness? Let me tell you on the front end, this is not the most efficient way to live, and it's not the most convenient way to live. It involves dying to yourself and your agenda and your desires. But let me tell you, it's life-giving to live this way. And those who've been born again are characterized by this kind of living because they love their neighbors as themselves. Third, you love your neighbor with pure, true speech. Now, I don't hear a lot of impure, lying speech when we talk to each other around here. But I wonder, if I were to ask you to raise your hands, I wonder how many of you would say, I'm a Christian married to another Christian. That's not all of you, but it's a lot of you. And if that's you, do you realize that your closest neighbor, if you're a Christian married to another Christian, is the person you sleep next to every night? Your spouse, believer, is your neighbor if he or she is also a believer. And so the Scriptures commands concerning neighbor love applies to them. And that's the occasion that you have to obey the command to love your neighbor as yourself most often. So let me ask you, how are you doing at talking to your closest neighbor with true, pure speech? Paul says to the Colossians that you must put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Paul says to the Colossian believers how they're to talk to each other. And that applies to you, Christian husband and wife, do anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk describe your speech? You're not to lie to each other by, for example, saying things are fine when they're not and letting problems and bitterness and resentment and strife and anger fester. You're rather to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You Christian who's married to another Christian, do those things from Colossians 3, 12 through 14 describe your home and your marriage? This is neighbor love we're talking about, and you're married to a neighbor if you're a Christian and your spouse is a Christian. And obviously, church... This all applies not only between Christian husbands and wives. All of you Christians, speak what's true to people in the church. Love your neighbor by not lying, by acting like there's a, there isn't a conflict when there is one. Don't speak, even if only in your heart, about your neighbor with words of anger and wrath and malice. That's not in keeping with the Lord's commands to love your neighbor, which his son died to empower you to obey. But let me say to you, brothers and sisters, if, if in this application time you're feeling convicted of sin, don't get mad or despondent or discouraged. Repent. The Lord is showing you grace if he's revealing sin to you because there's a Savior who died to forgive sins. He'll show you mercy. Repent. Ask God to give you grace to grow in being characterized by these various aspects of love for your neighbor. Ask God to cause you to grow to be characterized by, those, uh, by love for those in the body of Christ. It's Satan who'd have you be discouraged by your sin. No, the Lord wants you to come boldly to the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy to help in your time of need. And so when the Lord commands you to love your neighbor... Receive that as good news. Why? Because the Bible says his commands are not burdensome. And because it's impossible to live a life characterized by humble, selfless, patient, kind, pure, true love for your neighbor. And to live grumpy and bitter and irritable. No, you just can't do it. Living this way is the path to a joyful life. To love your neighbor as yourself is to love those who by grace through faith have been placed in Christ and in his new covenant community. It's to love your neighbor humbly and selflessly and sacrificially. It's to love your neighbor as Jesus loved his neighbors. May the Lord cause us to abound in love for our neighbors for the sake of inheriting eternal life in and with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. (sighs) Father, we thank you for your son who loved his neighbor by dying on the cross for us. And I pray that we who have been born again and indwelt with your spirit would love our neighbors as we love ourselves would live characterized by a laying down our life love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.